0: This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishnabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation-building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub Podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. Okay, folks, this conversation might make you feel a little uncomfortable, and it may also be the most important podcast you ever listened to. I first came to know Martha Awajobi during an online conference when she got up on a soapbox and blew my mind. One of the first things Martha will tell you is that she does not work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Martha has her feet firmly planted in the anti-racism space. Martha is the founder, director, and fearless leader of JMB Consulting. After spending 10 years working in the charity and philanthropic sector, she was disappointed to find that the space that she believed could truly be transformational in bringing about the liberation of oppressed groups also perpetuated horrific racism. Leaders were slow to innovate, resistant to name structural racism, and reluctant to meaningfully include black and brown people in decision-making. Instead, they were preoccupied with being quote-unquote good people doing good work at the expense of confronting and dismantling the very real racism that their organizations perpetuate. Martha works in coalition with organizations who share her goal of liberation from oppression through her work at JMB and through the BAME Online Series, which supports fundraisers and founders of color to navigate the philanthropic sector and generate sustainable income. In this episode, we talk about the importance of really understanding the harm that systemic racism continues to cause and our respective roles in supporting that system. We talk about how most diversity, equity, and inclusion work is performative and that we need to back up the train and really take time to understand what racism is and our respective roles in perpetuating systemic racism in the charitable sector. So folks, fasten your seatbelts. Let's dig in. Martha, welcome to The Hub. I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for making this a priority.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It is nice to be international. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You
0: are, yeah, global. So you're coming, uh, you're chatting uh, to us from London today. And... I'm in
1: Manchester, actually. Oh, you're so in Manchester. Manchester. In, yeah, in the north. I moved to Manchester last year um, to try and learn a little bit more about how people do grassroots work outside of London, because mm. if you are from the UK, most of what we talk about in the charity sector is very london-centric and i don't yeah. really think that's like, yeah. what's happening
0: so you uh i would i first came to know you at fundraising everywhere had an open platform conference where people could just uh bring their own topic to the table and first of all i i would just like to um seek forgiveness ahead of time. If I have a rather uneducated conversation with you, I'm getting better at these things. And you, you taught me that day, you know, you talked about anti-racism and that you didn't do DEI work. And I have to say that you blew my mind because it occurred to me that we're having the wrong conversation. Yeah. So, thank you for coming here to talk uh, about that, about anti racism with us today. And I'm looking forward to it. And I think a lot of our listeners maybe share my perspective of life. And uh, hopefully, this chat will help enlighten them as well. Um, but before we get started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into the charitable sector.
1: What oh, story? Yeah story oh I've been a charity person since I was like you know first entering the job market my parents actually met at a British charity so it's been in my blood um, basically but I started in fundraising when I was 18 years old and I don't know how things work in the states but you're not in the states are you you're in Canada
0: thank you for that clarification you're right I am in Canada
1: it's <laughs> like automatically comes out I know um, so um, in, in the UK, it is quite unlikely that if you are a person of color, particularly a black person, you will end up in a kind of professional fundraising role. The entrance in generally for people from my background, I grew up in Tottenham, which is, um, yeah, seen as a you know deprived area in in London, um, but I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did street fundraising. You know that one, yeah, where you stop people on the streets? Yeah, I don't know if people are doing it in uh, in Canada. Um, so I was a street fundraiser for a while and then moved into fundraising roles in children's charities, and kind of, um, domestic abuse charities and a homeless charity and stayed in fundraising mainly in corporate partnerships up until 2020. But in the background, I've always been doing kind of like political organising, campaigning work firstly around feminist issues and then kind of really focusing my my efforts on anti-racism. Um, so I was part of Charity So White, if you've ever heard of that group. Um, no. no? oh, No, really cool.
0: <laughs> but I need um, to it up now. Charities are white?
1: Charity okay. So White. So it was like a riff on the Oscars So White thing that happened, you know, in 2019. Um, it was a campaigning group in the UK that was calling on... Um, leaders to acknowledge racism and commit to doing better and even that was really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was doing all this kind of organising, really enjoying myself, actually having the opportunity to talk to leaders in a way I wasn't really expecting, uh, not really getting anywhere with it I'll be honest. Um, And then I was supposed to start work at a theatre in the uh, the Roundhouse in Camden, if you've heard of that, it's quite a famous theatre um, but unfortunately COVID happened and all of this closed. So I set up my own business um, mm. consulting around anti-racism. Although originally I wanted to do, well, I thought I would be, should be doing fundraising consultancy because that's what my discipline was. Yep. My first job was to curate an anti-racism conference, looking at kind of anti-racism in philanthropy and funding for fundraising everywhere. Mm-hmm. And from there, people were really interested in my work and interested in what I had to say. And I think, you know, like I said, at the Over to You event with Fundraising Everywhere, um, I'm talking about kind of, you know, white supremacy, imperialism, all of these words that are big um, Mm no-nos in the charity sector, kind of in British culture. Um, And I think there was a real kind of need for somebody to tell it how it is, even though that sounds really cliche, but it's the truth. Um, I don't think we are having the right conversations. I think Mm -hmm. the team comes around the edges, and I really wanted to offer an alternative that was truly transformative. Mm
0: -hmm. I love that, Martha. Um, thank you for helping us. It's amazing how people think they plan their careers, but careers just happen, don't they? I mean, there's some intentionality, but but for most of us, life just leads us where we're meant to be.
1: And I think. And I think, I mean, I've really enjoyed that kind of just being led, um, actually. And I think, you know, you're supposed to have this plan or whatever. But because I was quite open-minded and thought, you know what, let me just try my hand at anything. With the understanding with my clients that it might be the first time I've done this thing. We're Mm -hmm. trying out something new, particularly like I'd never done training uh, before. I'd never put on events really before. But suddenly that's kind of, you know, what I'm known for. Um, so yeah, I've I've appreciated actually a lot of people in the charity sector taking a chance on me um and trying something a little bit different, which I think just goes to show that there wasn't anything, tr- <laughs> you know, truly kind of transformative for people, for people to really kind of cling on to. So yeah, it's been great to be able to offer a completely different perspective.
0: Yeah. So let's dig into this. I mean, I know that in the UK, um, racism in the UK, in Canada, and in the United States, has a little bit different of a tint to it, but not really, right? So in Canada, we are truth and reconciliation with our Indigenous and First Nations communities, I would say is something that we're uh, putting a lot more focus on than our contribution to slavery. But I wonder if we could um, chat just briefly about the difference between diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which every is a buzzword, everybody's creating a statement, it's happening in strategic plans, and mm-hmm. your lens of focusing on anti-racism first. What is the difference for some folks who are listening who maybe haven't thought of it before?
1: Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I think, you know, so often people kind of swap out the terms for each other, equity and diversity and anti-racism. And I've been very clear that they are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, um, I think, you know, EDI or equity, diversity and inclusion really is a watered down version of kind of liberation politics. And I'd say so watered down that, you know, it's literally a cup of water. Um, And for me, it's ask questions about how do we include people into a white normative culture, rather than thinking about how do we liberate everybody from white normativity. Um, So more often than not, it's about kind of bringing people into an environment that's actually quite harmful for them. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, bringing more black and brown faces into rooms, but actually not giving them any power. Mm. Um, I have not seen, apart from maybe like one or two, uh, people who do equity diversity and inclusion talking about white supremacy talking about imperialism talking about capitalism and those are at the kind of very core the fundamental core of um oppression right um so i feel that it plays lip service um to some really kind of important um yeah some really important politics and i find it very kind of difficult to kind of talk to the charity sector about this because equity diversity and inclusion has been is a term that people are comfortable with and the reason you know and that kind of says it all you know if you're comfortable with this term then it's probably not doing anything revolutionary you know it's yeah. not really doing this that's, that's fundamentally um breaking down these power systems um if anything i find equity diversity and inclusion just allows more racism to happen and at the same time holds up you know, a shiny little plaque saying, yes, we've done it.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: Uh, we've done our training. We've written our strategy. And actually so much of this work comes from like your heart and your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really difficult and really, really uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, we're just not there with yeah. diversity and education. I've never done it before uh personally so <laughs>
0: that's my never what um, and, and <laughs> I should have backed up and I have asked other people on the podcast how they identify right at the beginning because this is mostly audio so can you just update listeners who can't see you uh, let us know how you I'm a white cisgendered privileged woman um how do you identify Martha
1: um, yeah, I'm black. I'm mixed. Um, I'm queer, bisexual. Uh, my gender is fluid. Um, so I'm like the diversity <laughs> tick box.
0: Yeah, you are the box.
1: Yeah. People, let's just get Martha at
0: yeah. the table, and we've covered all our
1: bases Yeah. And I, I I'm I'm quite open about my identity, but I tend to not talk about it that much because I don't really think that. I think we focus quite heavily on identity politics and actually don't focus enough on actual politics. <laughs> so, yeah, good point. Yeah, good. So point. yeah, I'd say I'm pretty much on the out the outside, I guess, of all of these, you know, places of power. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm university educated. My, you know my upbringing, you know, we had enough money, like, so there's plenty of areas where I have structural advantage. And, you know, I think what's made it a little bit easier for me to really kind of enter into these rooms is that, yeah, I'm university educated, and I'm actually really attractive. So and yes, I know that sure. sounds, I Yes, know like I'm glinting, but sure. it's really important, <laughs> you know, it's an important kind of analysis to yeah. have that you are, you know, have Eurocentric features, which I think I do on my face, then um, those kinds of accesses is lubricated a little bit, you know, for you. And um, there's an amazing writer today, Sean Harrison, who talks about uh, Pretty Privilege. Yes.
0: Um, and Amanda yeah. Baca, I, um, we just a couple of episodes ago last season, uh, my amazing friend from New Mexico, Amanda Baca, came in, and we have a podcast um, on Pretty Privilege as well.
1: Oh. yeah we
0: talked about it for about an hour and you may want to go back listeners and hear Amanda talk more about the privilege that she carries because she's pretty and how that can also work against her and she has to work to be even smarter but that's another you know what I want to talk about on this podcast I would like to talk about the decolonization of philanthropy and yeah yeah. (laughs) so So we do know, and there's a lot of work being done in North America, um, acknowledging that the philanthropic sector was really built on the backs of slaves. And how do we write that wrong? Where do we even start? Um, And you talk a little bit about power Uh, I wonder if we could dig into power a little bit. And then I love, um, I've heard you talk about the five stages of decolonization. And that, again, was just a mind-blowing moment for me. Uh, So in terms of power distribution, what would you say are, are the key things for us to be aware of if we want to strive to do that?
1: Oh, my gosh, these are big questions, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you can you can
0: give me the secret signal if you just want to pass and I can skip right over them.
1: I'll give it a go. Um, I mean, firstly, it's important to kind of think about philanthropy as like the kind of industrial complex of philanthropy and an actual philanthropy, which is the love of humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. So philanthropy has been happening way before the colonial projects, right, within communities, the tithing systems within black communities as well. So there's, there's two different things going on here, I think, you know, Um, but if we're talking about philanthropy, the industry, the nonprofit, or the the philanthropic industrial complex, I don't think you can decolonize philanthropy because you can't decolonize colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. So I know, and that's something I've been kind of really wrestling with and something I think about so much more these days is how, colonization keeps being used as a metaphor right Mm -hmm. um and uh, again that speaks to a a fundamental kind of lack of lack of education i think people hear a word think they understand it and then jump on things like anti-racism like intersectionality like privilege like most people don't know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. um and that's okay (laughs) as long as you're opening open to learning. um but for me i mean after working in philanthropy for the last 12 years we can see how at least in the UK how philanthropy kind of does the opposite of what it says it's going to do um you know fund foundations give away about four percent of the the money that they make right um and you know I don't think that's in any way trying to achieve mission so they'll say you know we've got this mission to support xyz um you know youth organizations whatever and then their endowments are linked up with horrific, exploitative organizations, right? And actually they're only giving away 4% of it. Um, I think you only really need to look at, you know, who makes decisions within kind of philanthropy, particularly in the UK. I actually see more interesting stuff happening in Canada and in the States. I think we're a little bit further behind, but that's because um, we're really good at denying racism here. Well, Um,
0: I mean, you know, there's a long history of coming over and, you know, taking over colonizing the world there's a long so uh, maybe maybe the UK is starting a little further back maybe I don't know
1: I'd say because we I mean I'd say the UK is just amazing at PR firstly like and we are really uneducated bunch mm -hmm. of people I I'm sorry to say it to British people but we don't learn anything useful at school uh, (laughs) at all Um, but more importantly we did all of our slavery overseas we did all of our colonization overseas, so actually, you know, kind of the narrative that we've told ourselves on this island is that we ended slavery, but we also started slavery. <laughs> you, know, we were, you know, we were we were the the biggest kind of players in the in the um, transatlantic slave trade, um, and there isn't any kind of real understanding of that. I think we're starting to get there um, with kind of you know the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in 2020 um, and more people kind of. Yeah, getting a little bit more educated um but yeah to answer your question i don't think you can decolonize philanthropy but i don't think i think philanthropy has a role to play in liberation right for all people but i don't think philanthropy is going to be the ones that do it um philanthropy needs to sit back and just give the money away like just give the money back to the communities that were stolen from you know as you said Um, So much of the riches and the wealth and the funds that are available in the UK today are a direct result of colonial exploitation. You know, something that a few organizations that have been quite interesting, um, Lloyds, for example, Lloyds of London, um, they would insure slave ships. um, And they are one of the biggest, most prominent banks in the UK, um, and they have a foundation. Um, two years ago, they acknowledged their role in the transatlantic slave trade um, and committed to um, redistributing money to black-led organisations, right? Mm-hmm. So things are changing, but that's like one foundation. It's like three or four foundations who have been like, right, we really need to, you know, think about our grant making, but they never think about their endowments. It's always about grant making, which is about 4% of, of you know, the money that's um, that they're making. So... Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer. It's, a difficult it's, a, question. it's really,
0: it's a really interesting dialogue, though, to me because when I listen to you, uh, I see things through a lens that had never occurred to me before, and I find myself nodding, going, "Yes, that makes so much sense." Like, are we talking about the liberation? Are we liberating philanthropy instead of decolonizing philanthropy? Like the liberation of, it, it's more about the liberation of people. Yeah. I mean, um, I think
1: we should end philanthropy. It should end as the practice, the industry. Like yeah. I think, you know, if you work for a foundation and you know that your money has come from the back of slavery and like not even slavery, just like the continued exploitation of black and brown people. Sometimes yeah. it's like, of oh, course, slavery happened back then, but actually, you know, capitalism exists on exploiting black and brown people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's in clothing, whether that's in tech, you know, it, there's there's so much exploitation involved and these, these philanthrop- uh, funders and philanthropists, you know, are heavily invested in that. Um, mm-hmm. And what I find quite insulting is they took our money <laughs> and then they make us jump through hoops to get it back, right? And then what we're getting back is like the tiniest little crumbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, people who, you know, work for black led organizations are being told that they're too risky to fund, that they don't know how to measure impact properly, when maybe it's that the the funders don't know what impact really means. And Mm. something that's been really important for me is like thinking about, okay, how do we create different systems of evaluation Mm. that are based on relationships and based on trust rather than based on colonialism? Because even the way we measure impact is so colonial And you mentioned, you know, truth and reconciliation in Canada. And I've been reading from some work by Indigenous people who are like, yeah, well, truth and reconciliation is still completely colonial because we don't get to set the terms of what truth and reconciliation is. And -hmm. actually, it's an extension of coloniality, but just coloniality light, you know, and actually what we should be thinking about is liberation from all of this. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to let that land for a little bit. Because the idea that in spite of our best efforts, and by our, I mean, white people who have the power to try to make things right, we continue to fuck it up. Yes. yes <laughs> so that and that leads me, you know, I always know these conversations are good when I feel extremely uncomfortable having them. And it makes me think about the five stages of decolonization and that first stage being, first of all, accept and learn about the harm that has been caused. Really truthfully... Um, embody that
1: yeah I think that's so important and people just try try and miss that bit out and they're like yeah what can we do and it's like you don't even know what you've done <laughs> you don't yeah. know what exactly. you did in past, and you're like we're gonna fix it I'm like, and anybody if I ask you what was the colonial project most people are like uh <laughs> you know so we need to understand what colonialism is and was and you know how it's still playing out um Mm -hmm. in order for us to kind of i think you know there is some i don't know whether there's like i know it's yeah it's uncomfortable and it's painful um but it's actually fascinating as well like this is what laid the foundations of the world that we know today like why wouldn't people be interested in that i'm interested as a black person why the hell are white people not interested you know
0: well because you know why because we have to give something up We would have to give up uh, and make space for and and acknowledge the harm that we've done collectively and individually. And there are, are, I mean, the Pope just came and apologized all the way across our country for what we did uh, in residential schools, but the Catholics don't even want to admit that the Pope for crying out loud apologized, but Catholics still don't want to have the conversation. So So let's go through that. So that's painful. It's painful to acknowledge that harm because we all like to think that we're good people, right? Yeah. And then, you know, why don't you take us through? I serve on a board of directors. I would say when I heard you talking about those five stages and most organizations starting at four, I was like, yep, that's exactly (laughs) where we all go. (laughs) We we don't want to do the other stuff.
1: Sure, I will take you through it. And you know, this is just one um, theory of decolonization. This is one interpretation. There are so many different people who have different schools of thought around decolonization. I think sometimes we think that because we think it's a metaphor sometimes, that there's one specific way to do things. But there are so many different thinkers from across, you know, colonized peoples who have been theorizing in different ways about it. And this is just one um, coming out of Hawaii, right, Um, by an activist called Pokolemi. And they say that the process of decolonization takes five stages you have uh rediscovery and recovery which is what we just spoke about which is the learning right discovering like the horrible horrible ugly violent disgusting truth of white supremacy and like really like dedicating yourself to learning like the most horrible parts and you know there are some parts that keep me up at night you know mm-hmm. and horrific things that have happened and that's not just the you know, the physical violence, but the spiritual violence, the mental violence, that kind of like epistemicide, as we say, which is destruction of knowledge, destruction of culture, destruction of spirituality and denigration um, of cultures that are deemed kind of backwards, I guess. Um, and then once you've done that, uh, you mourn. Um, and this bit I think is the bit that white people really struggle to engage with um, because you have to mourn in order to heal, like you have to kind of step into the pain, the trauma, all of that, you know, anyone who's been to therapy, anyone who's ever tried to heal from trauma, and white people are traumatized by racism too, right, because you have to sacrifice part of your humanity in order to be invested in whiteness, right, so sometimes I think we think this is all about people of color, but like white people are like so invested in this kind of process of racism, so mourning for me is yeah it's individual but like it's collective actually and that's why I think it's so important for organizations to come together and mourn their own past Mm -hmm. their own white supremacy you know get those feelings out because they are essential I guess to the healing process and they're the things that we we want to avoid anger grief you know the angry black woman but actually the angry black woman is decolonizing her mind (laughs) you know (laughs) and we're supposed to make the connection between anger and sadness and a longing for freedom. Um, and then you dream. This is the bit that I feel like I've personally just got to. If mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that says anything about this being a lifelong uh, process, uh, which is about exploring the innate human impulse to move towards freedom. And one of my favorite quotes um, by um, Order Lord is, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Uh, They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And what she's talking about there is trying to dismantle oppression through oppressive systems like using EDI, which is a white system. Right. (laughs) So it's never going to end whiteness. Um, So this is about decolonizing your mind and bringing new ideas to the table instead of recycling ideas that were introduced by colonial manufacturers. And like, for me, like this is so essential to, you know, the work work that I'm trying to do. And it's arguably the hardest part to do because white supremacy will limit your imagination. And we talk about radical imagination so much in anti-racist practice, but it is very, very, very hard to access because everything is distracting you're working to the ground, you know, there is no time to build these like deep connections. There is no time to really like step into your imagination at all. Um, And it's really hard to think of new ideas when you've literally been educated by white supremacy, by capitalism, by, you know, um, imperialism. Mm -hmm. That's number one, two, and three. And that's the one I think every organization, most white leaders miss out. Um, And then you commit. So that's all the hard work, I think, in the first three stages. Um, you commit, which is establishing your attention, um, and then you act. And when 2020 and the murder of George Floyd happened, everybody was rushing to act. You know, allyship this, allyship that. I'm very critical of that term. Mm. Um, and I didn't do the kind of necessary work. And I, You know, the process isn't like linear in that you have to keep going back and honoring these stages all the time right Mm -hmm. but I find it quite worrying the arrogance of white leaders who thought that they would be experts on anti-racism when really they're experts in doing racism um, and haven't done the kind of necessary learning reflecting or engaging with their emotions because it's an emotional process it's a spiritual process Mm -hmm. and in the workplace I guess we try and divorce our emotions and spirituality from our day-to-day work, even though it's not like we don't bring ourselves into work. You know, we're not like suddenly like severance, you know, robots on the enter the door. Yeah.
0: yeah, but pre-COVID going to work was performative. Yeah. People put on a different some armor and they went into work. And stages one, two, and three are about taking off the armor and looking into the dark corners together. And we don't as humans, historically, we haven't done that in the workplace. It hasn't been safe for anybody really at work to be that vulnerable. Mm. But we're changing, I think. I think that all of this disruptions, the pandemic, George Floyd, the economic crisis, humans are recreating a new way forward. And that there is more space for dreaming about the possibilities now and more space for dialogue.
1: I hope so. I mean, I'm in the UK right now and we are in an absolute shit show, right? Like the economic crisis here is unbelievable. And I don't think that it's going to leave any room for anybody to dream, mm. um, Because, you know, We've got our electricity bills increasing by five times um, in the next in the next couple of months. You know, inflation is, you know, above 10 percent. Like it's I'm genuinely I'm I'm scared. And I'm also, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous that we're going we're to take we're going to take a lot of steps back, not realize that imperialism, racism, capitalism are all deeply connected to the economic crisis that we find ourselves in. Um, there's lots of incredible thinkers like um, Amy Cesar, who talk about boomerang theory, which is kind of the policies that we enacted during the colonial process, coming back to roost, right? <laughs> so actually, the same way that we treated, you know, black and brown people um, in the colonial process is the same way our government treats poor people, white people here. Um, and I find that really quite fascinating. Um, but I think if you kind of base your uh culture on exploitation and oppression like what do you expect Mm. um but I do see like a genuine commitment from some people but at the same time I see a lot of a lot of lip service it's very hard to know who to trust you know I am dedicating myself to providing free education for you know anybody that wants it but my fear is that my language will get co-opted and there'll be no action behind it there'll be no kind of depth behind it suddenly everybody's talking about intersectionality but they don't know what they're talking about people are talking about decolonization but they don't know what they're talking about so that's Can
0: you, so your language becoming what did you say your language becoming co-opted co-opted but no action coming as a result so think what you're saying is i'll learn new terms to say the same thing and then i'll say them sounding smart but nothing about my behavior changes
1: yes and i find that quite i mean it's it's very interesting because i mean particularly like british culture is all about naming and labeling things like it just obsessed obsessed with like categorizing naming everybody has to have a special name and part of my gripe with allyship is that this term was created and actually i don't see any allies doing anything (laughs) you know they're kind of just (laughs) going saying I'm an ally and then I mean I had a an event recently with um with a scholar that we work with where we were debunking allyship and and I was saying I don't think there needs to be a word for doing the work like I don't think there needs to be a special term a special label um and someone asked okay well what do we replace it with and I was like we're like yeah it just doesn't (laughs) exist anymore yeah but I think there's you know so so much kind of liberation politics and you know even i've been guilty of it myself where i have kind of thought i knew what a concept meant thought i understood it started talking about it and actually have been rightfully schooled by, by people who were like actually you don't know what you're talking about and that's what i feel like is kind of happening at the moment is a lot of um, words being used and a lot of people using the right language Um, but actually still engaging in very oppressive uh, practices. Like EDI, you know, it's language to mask oppressive practices, I think.
0: Like moving to stage four before doing one, two, and three. Let's not leave listeners hanging, though. Uh, Number five.
1: Action. That was it? That was action? (laughs) That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be honest, if you've done one, two, and three, you know what the actions will be. You know what the actions need to be. And it's just, you know, doing them. Um, But yeah, I, it's interesting. I think I get to see like the best and the worst because I do anti-racist practice and I often do work with organizations who like really want to change. They tend to be smaller organizations and they are, you know, really able to, but at the same time sometimes i work with organizations for a really long time and then a year later i find out that they're, they're being even more oppressive but Can they're you... like oh we've done this anti-racist work for that time um if this is a really
0: naive and stupid question feel free not to answer it what are some examples of an oppressive culture
1: um <laughs> Well, not paying people enough, firstly. Um, having, you know, only black and brown people kind of in junior positions. Um, I'd say boards are like the center of oppression, in my in my opinion. Um, really just like not not listening to staff of colour like whatsoever, mm-hmm. not paying them properly, not giving them any kind of decision making power. Um it's I think
0: seems so obvious. It seems so obvious, but it it can also be just so ingrained in how we live in our everyday lives that unless we name it and, and call it out, we don't even notice it. And there was I was talking to somebody the other day who said that she, through this work, she's a BIPOC woman, and through this work, she is only just coming to realize all the microaggressions that she's had to deal with. In her career, and it's very painful for her to wake up and go, "Holy crap! I I am one of the oppressed." And there are all these examples of, and how could I fall for that? There's yeah. a real grief there for her. um So, yeah, yeah. it's tough.
1: It's it, a- it is. I mean, I yes, I was going to say it is, and it isn't. No, it is really. It tough. is tough. <laughs> <laughs> it is really tough um and I mean I try my best to not think too much or not use like my practice really isn't about like going around and talking about how sad it is or like how terrible it is for people of color because I don't actually think that that's really helpful because it really triggers a lot of guilt um guilt is just unhelpful when it comes to you know um creating these kind of more liberated cultures um I prefer to just give people the facts, tell people the history, uh, you know. Um, but I really feel that, and I think you know, I've been quite fortunate enough. I mean, so I'm mixed. I grew up in a household where I had one white parent, one black parent. Race was at the very core of how I understood the world from the moment I started understanding things. You know, mm-hmm. why does this parent look totally different to me? Why does this parent look totally different to me? Like, how did they get together? Like, what are the dynamics? You know, like does my mom who's white like really understand my experience? Like, does she care to understand like these kinds of questions that made me very race conscious for the longest time where I think like I've had a little bit, um, I think it was like a blessing and a curse at the same time, you know, because like, I'm obsessed with race, but (laughs) but at the same time, um, I feel quite casual about it because I've been exploring it for my entire life. So 2020 didn't come as a surprise to me. Like I wasn't exhausted because I've been thinking about these things, doing these things, for a really long time anyway and I think lots of people who you know have been doing anti-racist work kind of saw 2020 as like oh thank gosh now everybody's getting towards our page rather than like oh my god this is all really terrible and exhausting because it was terrible and exhausting beforehand really um but yeah I hope your um friend colleague is okay Uh, and managing to get she's she's gonna be
0: okay um And if she's listening, she'll she'll be grateful that you expressed your concern. Uh, So, Martha, given all of this heavy work, where do you see hope and
1: joy? Oh, everywhere, I think. (laughs) I mean, I think so. I mean, one of my values is joy. Like, I, I, I this work is about liberation, like anti-racism is about love, right? It's Mm -hmm. about love, it's about joy, it's about liberation. Like there is nothing else that it could be because what's the opposite of racism? It's liberation, it's love, right? Racism is, you know, a tool that separates people, that separates white people from people of colour, that separates different people of colour from each other. And actually building anti-racist practice is about being in like deep relationship with other people. And like, that is awesome. I love it um and I often think that people think oh god this must be so hard and I'm like no what's hard is experiencing racism all the time (laughs) institutional racism but actually I get to see people have their aha moment I get to see white people saying I'm not going to be white anymore because whiteness is an idea you know it's not actually a lived reality of somebody's skin because you know there are people who are exactly the same skin colour that are, like, English, but also Iranian. <laughs> and the Iranians are not white. Like, it's a complete social construction. So I get a lot of joy from, yeah, from 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 my work, from being able to, to see people's minds change, from being able to see them go through that process of decolonization with me. And I work with cool people, like my friends, you know, so I think I feel more joy doing it than I've felt not doing it you know when I worked in philanthropy and I felt powerless because I wasn't able to be in these rooms of power and say to people you better fix up (laughs) (laughs) that felt much worse um but yeah I think I'm quite a joyful person I put a lot of effort into like looking after myself you know like I don't I know this work is not going to kill me I'm not going to let it kill me um that's not why I do it and I think people who do do this work and don't give themselves space to rest um and who let it consume them like that's the logics of whiteness and the logics of capitalism like ingrained in how we should feel about work this Mm -hmm. is meant to be joyful like work Mm -hmm. is not meant to kill us (laughs) and yeah and although like the process of decolonization in general is a violent process because colonization was violent but you know so is racism so yeah it's a bit of a tricky question but yeah I do feel like I get my I get my joy everywhere you know um yeah that's my answer (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) I'm gonna start waffling if I don't stop
0: (laughs) I'm just let you keep on talking but you make such good points though that um anti-racism work is about human connection. It is about vulnerability. It is about being together, about sharing space and creating space and going deep with relationships. And that is a joyful human thing.
1: It's super awesome. I mean, me and my team, we love chatting white supremacy. And like, it's so funny because so many people, you know, get really uncomfortable when you say white supremacy, they think you're calling them a KKK member or something. We have these like joyful discussions where we're like, okay, Let's talk about how white supremacy has shown up in our work in the last week. And by the end of the conversation, we're like laughing and being like, ha ha ha, can't believe I did that thing. Or, you know, ha, ha can't believe, you know, I didn't see this structure. And, and being critical and being analytical, like is a joyful process. Like, I think it's, yeah, maybe that's just the way I think because I'm, I love questioning and I love, um, and I think, you know, part of being queer, I guess, and having a queer politic is about, questioning the things that are taken for granted you know that everybody is supposed to be straight that whiteness is meant to be the best that, you know that um that certain people are supposed to have money and certain people aren't like nah that's not well that's not you like, know
0: what i'm reading this book right now i wish it was in my office so i could show it to you it's called bitch on the female of the species and
1: heard of it.
0: It, it is so fascinating because it is all about you know, Darwin, you talk about the beginnings of the patriarchy, you know, Darwin explored nature through a patriarchal lens. So of course, he made all sorts of assumptions about gender and women and the female of the species. And this book is a study of uh Sharing the work of zoologists and biologists who actually looked at the female of the species through a feminist lens. So mm-hmm. I'm on a little bit of a thing because it's such a fascinating book, uh, which I think you might find interesting. Oh, I love
1: it! I mean, I'm currently working with a few women's organizations, like really brushing up on my uh, feminist history. So I'm currently reading the Biopolitics of Feeling, which is awesome, and the invention of women which is like by a Yoruba um so where my father's from in Nigeria like his tribe is Yoruba um and it's a Yoruba author talking about how Europeans came to West Africa and and invented woman Well, there was no such thing as women (laughs) we were (laughs) were all just people we
0: were just people
1: yeah I guess it was you know the way that people were categorized was different a lot of it was like more around class and around status and around age right and Mm -hmm. actually you know the Looking at kind of gender and sexuality, like through a kind of, you know, um African lens, like for me, um, has been really important to kind of understand that so much of this is, well, everything is socially constructed. All of these ways that we categorize people is socially constructed as ways to decide who gets to have power and who doesn't, who gets to have resources, who doesn't.
0: And this is you know, and that 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 speaks to your point about when I said, "How do you identify?" you're like, "I don't really grab you know like to put myself in boxes like that, and that's a new perspective for me so th- thank you for that. um, so Martha, if this conversation was going to end right now, what would be left unsaid?
1: <laughs> <laughs> like um. I mean, everything, what uh, <laughs> <laughs> would well, we'll be left unsaid? Um, um, for me, I think, so we spoke about, you know, I'm a little bit like anti, like naming different I- identities. Not like they don't have a purpose. Like it is important to be able to talk about different identities because like, that is basically what has created our social reality but I think we spend too much time focusing on identities and not enough time naming systems of power, Mm. right? So I always talk about the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, ableist, cis-heteropatriarchy, and that makes people shudder, right? (laughs) Because they're more comfortable with just putting people in boxes rather than talking about these kinds of systems of power and recognising that each system is connected to, you know, all of the others. Um, So I would say... People need to get used to talking about these terms that make them uncomfortable, like imperialism, like white supremacy, like capitalism, ableism, so patriarchy, because if we cannot even name these systems of power, how the hell are we going to dismantle them?
0: Yeah. Well done. Thanks. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this work. Thank you for your contribution and thank you for joining me in this conversation.
1: Oh, no problem. It was really nice. I'm a little bit worse for where I was telling you that I had a really wild weekend this, <laughs> this weekend. So I'm hoping that it all comes across. Um, well.
0: I've really really enjoyed getting to know you. I really have. I'd like to stay connected and um Definitely. I'll of course keep following your work and I you know I uh as I was sort of digging around the internet, trying to frame this conversation in my head, I never went to the BAME conference because I didn't think that it was for me. Isn't that I awful?
1: Should have gone. Oh my God. It's This is the thing. Racism and anti-racism is everybody's business. That's the thing, you know, and particularly white people. <laughs> it's really
0: yeah. Like Probably um, if anybody should have shown up, I should have shown up. But but I'm also aware of the, I think this podcast ended already so this prob i don't know but i'm also aware of the need to back off and leave space and that tension now i'm centering me but um but so it's it's not always easy to know when to show up and when to just leave it alone and to back off and i've entered clubhouse rooms where i was just asked to leave the room because mm. of the color of my skin and at first I was really offended by that. And then I thought, no, you know, I really love female only spaces. When we tell guys they can't show up, people have every right to say they don't want to have white people showing up right now.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know? I mean, I'm, I feel like I've, I have a slightly different perspective, although I did have that perspective like a few years ago, but I, I think my learning has changed a little bit in that sometimes I think, you know, white people are really nervous and anxious about getting involved in any of this stuff. You know, oh, I don't know, oh, doing the right thing. Oh, I don't want to say the right thing, all based on perfectionism, which is part of white supremacy. Um, but often, more often than not, when people kind of show up and they're like, I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm leaving space. It's like absolving them of their responsibility to like do the work. Mm-hmm. So I have a different perspective. And people who do anti-racist work and people who are people of colour do not agree on everything. Right. So my perspective <laughs> is my perspective. Um, I think that you know racism is white people's problem. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be really, really invested in um, in being part of the solution. And I think you know the more you spend time with anti-racists and start learning about this work, you will know when to back off and when to not. You know, yeah. oh yeah, you'll get told. Um, but for the purpose of my work, like I don't think I don't think people of color are going to end racism without white people's help like I want co-conspirators I want people to work together yeah um you know the most the incredible work that was happening from the six in the 60s 70s 80s was groups getting together you know there was the white panthers which was a group of white people who um disavowed like white nationalism and were like yeah we support the black panther party now and we're the white panthers like that was cool as hell you know um so there are a yeah. couple of,
0: there are a couple of doctors on the east coast of the united states i don't know if you know of uh dr tina opie o-p-i-e and this she is, just shared oh no, about, someone else hmm?
1: carry on i was thinking of someone else but, no no, no she
0: her and her business partner colleague um I want to say Martha Livingston. I might have her first name wrong, but definitely Dr. Livingston. They are creating space and dialogue for white women and Black women to come together in a shared sisterhood to learn how to really build connection and be curious and foster understanding and have these conversations with deep compassion and empathy for the other person's perspective. That work really resonates with me. Like, yeah, you know. I think let's, so. Let's be kind.
1: What I find most disturbing, I think, is like the allyship industrial complex, basically, where you know, people like Robin D'Angelo making millions of anti-racism books, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, that's I think that's power. That's like white power, like in action. Like she white, DiAngelo- white
0: privilege, was it white privilege? Was that the book that she wrote?
1: Um, I have never read any of her books but it was um I yeah, she did
0: that was the first the first exposure I had to starting to do this work was that one yeah
1: yeah um trying to what's her famous famous book white fragility white, that's fr- white
0: fragility that's what it is yeah, yeah. yeah
1: um and I see that happen quite a lot where like you know people's allyship is dependent on them either gaining status um gaining money um that is you know quite abhorrent to me but those kind of places where you get into kind of like deep relationship and I you know some of the people that are like the best people to organize with are white people like you know I think we've got really kind of hung up on what people look like which is again part of the colonial project you know <laughs> drawing these kind of lines and making assumptions about people's politics people's lived experience if I look at the British cabinet at the moment it's full of people of color who are racist and <laughs> want poor people of colour to die, you know, who are wow. deporting people of colour to Rwanda. And so identity isn't everything. What we really need to do is start thinking a little bit about, you know, when you, where you have the same material interests, where mm. you have the same politics, where you have a shared vision, like that is a lot more important. And I think what has been amazing is kind of the Thatcher and Reagan years, like really turning things into identity this, you know. And breaking those bonds of solidarity between white people and people of color where like people of color are like, I don't want any white people in my space and white people are like, I'm afraid to go into these spaces and then like, we need to get over it quickly, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and start thinking about what it means to be in coalition with each other.
0: You know, because when you when you talk about how people identify, that's putting people in boxes again. And your
1: approach
0: is building unity. Yeah. Your approach I, is even is I don't like.
1: I have to collaborate with people I don't like all the time. Like you have to Mm -hmm. with people who like don't necessarily share every single aspect of your goals, but you're moving towards a shared purpose. Do you know what I mean? And I think the individualization of these things, which I, you know, I'm British and Margaret Thatcher was like really kind of haunts us with how she's like individualized, like, you know, so many of these systemic issues um, has made it really hard for us to kind of see common goals, commonality and for white people to realize that they have just as much interest in dismantling white supremacy as people of color, because white supremacy fucks us all, mm. unless you're like rich as hell. <laughs> and there's <laughs> plenty of rich people of color who can buy their way out of white supremacy, like out of its um, So yeah, I think we just fundamentally need like huge learning, like huge, huge, huge political education, like everywhere, all the time, and you know, the best, I'd say, organisers of the past, like, were really committed to political education and making sure that people understood what these systems of power were and how they've got a grip on us and how they separate us. Um, and that's why a lot of the work I do is offering education to people, you know, training, events, like, making, helping people to understand some of the things that, yeah, like, I I feel like I understood a little bit too late as well. You know? mm. mm-hmm.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I'm so in love with you now, so I've just gotta go and process this.
1: Just think about me for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do hope that our paths cross again somewhere, so,
1: well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Martha thank you so much for joining us in conversation and for your grace when I asked you some super basic questions you were very generous and we can't thank you enough folks please remember to join the conversation with a like a share a review of this podcast even let us know what you think let's keep building community and fostering connection through candid conversation see you next time